Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker. And this week, we have a very special guest. Hey, guys. I'm Hassan Jaudhary. How are you doing? Doing well, Hassan. Welcome to the show. I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Hassan, thank you for being here. You are our first guest as a co-host for our show and would love for you to just tell the audience a first, little bit about Co- well, yeah, first co-host. First, first co-host. First guest first, co-host. Except for when just guest co-hosted because that, you had true. COVID. That's but true. yes. Yes. Second guest First co-host. time we have three co-hosts. Yes. The first time we have three co-hosts <laughs> and very excited about it because Hudson, yeah. you are a media exec, industry insider. We'd love for you to tell the audience just a bit about yourself and what your background is. Well, first of all, guys, thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. This is a very cool show. You guys do a great job. So I'm honored to be on. Yeah, a little background for me. Currently working at a podcast production company that's a startup. It's called Blanchard House. And we tell stories in audio that are really unique and different. And the idea is that they'll be sold for IP for television and film eventually. So before that was at HBO for several years. And then before that was working in finance. You know, an interesting little path to get here. We're excited. And later in the show, you'll dive in more about what you do, your experience at HBO. I think I'm just generally curious about that and you know yeah. how these deals work with selling shows to studios or platforms, et cetera. We'll get into it. I'm always fascinated to see people who have a really great mind for finance then yeah, 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 to get yeah. into entertainment and, and start running well. stuff. And yeah. it's like- That's where the money's yeah, made, baby. exactly. But let's kick it off with some news. This week, actually, a recap of an episode 35 topic. We talked about Ed Sheeran being sued for copyright infringement. This was Marvin Gaye's co-writer, Edward Townsend, wrote Let's Get It On, yeah. right, in the 1970s. And the claim is that Ed Sheeran's 2014 song, Thinking Out Loud, infringed the copyright. It was actually a six-year process, six-year legal battle. Case was filed in 2017, and trial just concluded last week in Manhattan. Ed Sheeran was found not guilty of copyright infringement uh, or not liable for it. Not to get super technical into it, but Ed Sheeran's defense didn't deny the two songs sounded similar. What they said was the song was independently created. He actually took the stand, testified as to the creation of it, played the chords on his guitar, highlighted some differences, but the main argument was that the similarities between the two songs were really just very common music building blocks, yeah. like chord progression, syncopation, things that appear in dozens of songs. So not things that Marvin Gaye could claim ownership of. Totally. And the jury took that side. Uh, it was a close case, obviously, because it went to trial. But Ed Sheeran said at the end, he was like, I'm pleased, but I'm also really frustrated that I have to keep defending these baseless yeah. accusations. Mm. I don't steal people's work. And you know, six years of aggravation. So yes, I've won, but I'm not here to be shaken down. I mean, I think the guy said, if I lose, I'm going to quit the music industry. And I'm an Ed Sheeran fan. I'm actually going to go see him concert later this summer. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, I'm very happy for him because he's he's a great creator. He's a great songwriter. Excited for him to continue making music. And the cool thing was he was in New York 
celebrating in I think That's Soho. Right, in Soho. Didn't you have like your a friend or a cousin? Yeah, Soho? yeah. My uh, my my wife's cousins actually ran into him in Soho. They're like, "What's going on? Why is traffic building up on this one street?" And they ended up right in front of him. Is where he was performing. He was like yeah. performing. They're like four feet away. Yeah. So Isn't that how cool. we got to start playing in like train stations in London or something? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. guy full circle. So congrats, Ed Sheeran. Moving from music, I wanted to talk about the box office. Summer box office just kicked off with Guardians 3. It was awesome. I went and saw it yesterday. I went and saw it in IMAX. This movie goes in my top five Marvel movies. Wow. And wow. it was beautifully made. It was funny. It was very violent and gory. Oh, wow. And it was very emotional. I had tears several times. Would you say it's the best Guardians? I think it's the best Guardians. Okay. It's the best Guardians and again, top five Marvel movies. James Gunn just absolutely, what a way to end his career at Marvel. And then the soundtrack, I think not enough credit goes to the Guardians soundtrack. It was so well done that I listened to the, I went on Spotify after the movie and I listened to like Guardians playlist volume three on Spotify, but highly, highly recommend it. So far doing decently, it's almost hit $270 million worldwide for opening weekend. But the interesting thing about it, besides, you know, Marvel was having a little bit of a rough way there. Nice way for them to get a bit back in the groove. Well, they needed that, that, right? They needed needed that uh, off the heels of Eternals, Quantumania, some some missteps. But the thing is, this is James Gunn. And so like James Gunn had proven himself since 2014 in the MCU, right? With Guardians 1, Guardians 2. I guess Guardians 2, you could say maybe was a little softer, but I liked it. It just kind of like went on and on and on. I don't think anyone had any doubts about James Gunn's ability to deliver volume three. I think the questions about Marvel may still remain. Yeah. Do Uh, Do you think that there is an audience fatigue? With Marvel in general, like audience fatigue in the sense they just there's a lot of content coming out, yeah, and I think they're just not hits anymore. I would say, as a fan and as someone who watches most of the content, it's like mediocre. And I think I went to go see Ant Man and I was like, this movie's not good. Mm-hmm. I'm not excited about this. I don't care about these characters. What the beauty about Guardians is, is that James Gunn has told a really good story, and we are in love with these characters that yeah. he's helped like tell the story of and Guardians 3 was just like a nice way to close that chapter and you know what big win for DC to get James Gunn now to like drive their creative process to answer the question I mean I think there has to be saturation at this point like a little bit of fatigue there's been so many Disney plus shows I don't think they could possibly all be hits so there's got to be a little bit of dilution there but I also think there's also a reversion to the mean because if you look at the performance of box office movies in general and then performance of Marvel movies, it's really like astronomical odds that they've maintained to have every movie be a hit. Typically, movies are sporadic performers, right? Most of them don't make money and some of them do. And if you can make money maybe half the time, you're, you're doing pretty well. So I just think Marvel's track record from phase one through four or phase mm-hmm. one through three is just something that kind of an aberration historically. That level of success, I don't think could be sustained indefinitely. But I also do think that they have new writers. They have Kevin's got different people under him making a lot of decisions. Victoria's gone. And a lot of the main above the line talent that was in the first couple phases is no longer you know in the MCU. So I think it's just a time of transition. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting factors. I think Disney's going through changes and 
what I like about what Iger is doing there is he's sort of putting the emphasis back on the creatives yeah. and letting them lead. And I think that's what's been a super successful strategy for Marvel and for Disney. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. Then there's the factor of like, is there fatigue with Guardians or, or with Marvel and with superheroes in general? And then the other factor of like, are people back to the theaters? I think, yeah. I think for certain types of movies, yeah. they are. Um, I am someone who likes to go to the theater no yes. matter what. I love it's doing it growing experience. up. It's a fun experience. Yeah. So I think it's all good for the industry. James Gunn at DC, a lot of big plans. Like he's thinking about this sort of similar to the way Marvel has of like a 10-year plan. Right. And so I'm excited to see that as well. I think it's good for the industry. Like you want people to put butts in seats. Yeah, and I, and I think that goes, like I went and saw it in IMAX. Mm-hmm. It was packed and we basically got a preview. The previews were previewing summer. And I wrote all, like, I was there on my phone. I was like watching all the previews because I wanted to see what were they advertising for the summer. And the summer's got like, there's a lot of movies. So Guardians kicks it off. We've got the Flash movie, which is DC's, I guess, kicking off. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, James Gunn's endorsed this movie, The Flash with Michael Keaton's Batman, Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's new film. That looks brilliant. You have Spider-Man across Spider-Verse. You have Fast 10, Little Mermaid, the live action adaptation, yeah. Transformers, Rise of the Beast. And here's the thing. I'm a Transformers guy. Love the first one. Didn't like the second one. Didn't mind the third one. The Mark Wahlberg ones were terrible. In my I like all opinion. of them. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, some of I get that they're so the Mark Wahlberg ones weren't as good. They're messy. And the second one wasn't as good. But I still can rewatch them. If it's on TV, I'm watching it. I liked the Mumblebee one when they yeah. rebooted it. And the interesting thing about Transformers: Rise of the Beast is that it's the director of Creed Two is the director oh. of this film, and I like who the writers are. The preview actually looked really good, mm. so I was excited about that. You have another Indiana Jones movie coming out with Harrison Ford. Man, stacked summer! I'm going to be in the theater a lot. That's yeah, I mean, this is look; those are all built franchises. Yeah, and they're also action, and like there's a lot of stuff going on in there. Which is good. I guess that's what we're going to see more and more of. Of like, especially yeah. during the summer box office, is like getting people in those theaters. You have to make those kinds of movies. Hey, and here's the thing: I think the Oppenheimer one. I'm most curious to see if people go. It, yeah. it is Christopher Nolan hasn't done something in a while, and every time he does something, there's something magical about it. Obviously, he had the Batman trilogy. You had Inception. You had, of course, Tenet. Uh, Tenant. Memento. Yeah. Memento. What was the one where they go? The space, Interstellar. Oh, oh that's Interstellar. like my favorite movie. Interstellar is amazing. Yeah. And so Oppenheimer just being like a historical piece, stacked cast. I mean, Matt Damon. And I love that it's Killian Murphy now, who's been in almost every Nolan movie, almost every Nolan movie, but he gets the lead here. And I'm a big Peaky Blinders fan. So I'm excited to see how that turns out. And that will be like, that's an original movie in terms of like, there's no built-in yeah. franchise, but it's, do people want to go see a Christopher Nolan movie? I think they I think will. So. I think they I think, because I went to go see Dunkirk in well, IMAX on, yeah. you know, like what's the theater on the Upper West, like 66. Right, right. Yeah. And man, the theater was shaking, right? Because of the sound and that like the way that he is able to tell a story with 
sound with visual. It's just, it's so fun. It's such an experience. Excited about summer box office, but let's take a break. Then we'll get back and talk about new shakeups in the media industry. So, yeah, so it's interesting you talk about summer box office. And the reason that summer box office is taking off, right, is obviously we're in May. and and But all these movies were, were made like a year ago, yeah. right? Or at least shot a year ago, and then they're in post-production. So most of the writing work has been done. The movies were in the can. So there isn't really a delay in any of the release of summer blockbusters. But we are talking about the WGA strike. We talked about this in episode 216. We said that at the end of April, the writers authorized the strike. They voted like 97% in favor of a strike. The deal with the AMPTP between the WGA and the AMPTP expired May 1st at midnight. It hasn't been extended. So the writer's strike will be going on for about a week uh, by the time you hear this. And it's impacting a lot of shows in different ways. Certain shows that were basically written and were in the middle of filming or towards the end of filming, like... Andor and Rings of Power are still going forward. They're not going to have any of their writing showrunners on set. And, and that just means that you can have the script as written, but you can't have anyone edit the script, right? You can't have any any WGA member right. uh, render services. And right. if it's a WGA project, all writing services have to be done by WGA members. So you could have someone like make a decision, I guess, that's not a like a non-writing EP, someone that didn't render writing services, but was there like throughout the process and maybe help do things that didn't involve writing. But basically it's not a comfortable thing, right? Because even if you do want to punch up lines or rewrite some dialogue at the last minute, or, you know, you just make a different decision or you're looking at something and you're looking at the dailies and you're like, oh, maybe we should do that slightly differently. That's technically, you know, writer's job. Yeah. Or, you know, a writing EP's job or a showrunner's job. So, there's pressure out of the studios, like they delay shooting that there's a lot of money involved there. So something like Rings of Power and or they're gonna move forward. And Other Stranger things, like, things that's paused. Is on hold. Yeah. Yeah. Stranger mm-hmm. Things is on hold. I think Daredevil is on hold. A lot of shows yeah. where there's significant writing left to be done are gonna be on hold because they need WJ writers. And I, I empathize with the writers, but I also understand the business side of it yeah. too. Studios negotiated a deal. They feel like they were operating within the boundaries of that deal. And this is a negotiation. I don't think it's a moral issue, but I do think the people who are responsible for creating the content should get paid. And if studios and and the producers are doing well, then the writers should be doing well too. One thing that I think is interesting is that AI and how that impacts writers' rooms going forward, I think is going to be a big part of the debate. I think what's fascinating right now is what have the streamers banked, right? For the summer through the fall. Oh, in terms of content. In not, terms of content, in terms, terms of, money of shows. That's right, right, right. Yeah, right. That, that's maybe a, a difficult choice of, of words. Um, but yeah, what have they, what do they have on the docket to be able to put out that doesn't require WGA services? I think the belief is that the streamers obviously probably saw this coming, did a little bit of that ahead of time. But in today's world, when they're serving so much content every single week, every single month, will that impact be felt by the viewers, by fans? And it does that then sort of change the business plans of the streamers who, by the way, you know, the stocks are down. The, yeah. the industry is traded. So like, yeah. I think there's a, lot, a host of issues, compensation, working conditions, you know, the, the mini rooms. 
perhaps data sharing? Yeah, I mean, data sharing, um, look, the way it used to work, as we all know, is Nielsen would come out with performance numbers because, you know, for linear television and everyone would sort of know how it performed. In the streaming world, it's held by the streamers and the streamers hail from technology companies, Netflix, Apple, Amazon, who are historically uh, not really, you know, um, open to sharing data and performance stuff. So it's a bit of a entertainment meets tech and how does that go forward? I think the writing and the creative community at large wants to know how things have performed and how like that will actually impact compensation. It used to just be, you know, part of the equation, right? Like it's part, yeah, exactly. And that is no longer the case. I think going forward, they're going to try to ask for some data, but we'll see where that line is drawn. Because again, the tech companies do not share this stuff. They keep it very close to the vest. That's not limited to WGA. I mean, that, that SAG and DGA are up uh, middle, end of June. So they all want this data. But I think that's always been part of the sales pitch was, hey, you don't have to take the risk if this thing's a hit. We're going to pay you, right. yeah. you know, let's say we're going to pay you 70% of if this thing was a home run. And if it's not a home run, that's on us. Yeah. You know, we, we take the downside risk and the upside. Yeah, and, I'm, and in the next segment, you know, Hudson would love to dive into like a little bit more. I mean, you've had a lot of experience with that in terms of not only funding a creative process, but then how does it get distributed, um, yeah. especially like on a, on a platform that's subscriber-based? Yeah, you know, I think it's really important. Everyone has to be made comfortable. They need to be involved in the process and they need to know how the project is doing. And there's a balance, I think, of course, but yeah, I'm happy to talk more about about that dynamic and, and distributing projects. All right, so let's take a break and then we get to come back and we get to dive in with Hassan and hearing more about his work and his story. In this final segment of our episode today, we wanna to talk to you, Hassan, about your experience at HBO and now you're at Blanchard House. And you know, you have insights and you've had a career that's pretty incredible on a platform that all of us love and watch. And you so literally are behind the scenes of Hollywood yeah, yeah, sports. And yes, you are so. behind the scenes of, <laughs> of the world that we love so much. So we'd love to just get a little bit of the story about how you got involved at HBO and what you did there and then how you got to Blanchard House. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, I feel I feel so fortunate because I had been able to work at a place that I admire so much and now do something that I'm really, really excited about. But let me let me give you a little bit of a background of sort of how I got there. I started my career as an investment banker, which was a great training ground for really any job after that, but obviously like worked way too many hours and did not want to do that for, for too long. I pivoted into private equity investing, worked there for a short amount of time, and really got a sense of the operating side and the strategy. That's of, a hard jump to make. Did you have to get an MBA? No, I um, I I was pretty fortunate. I, I was able to interview and get into a turnaround private equity shop, which basically bought companies that were on their last leg or, or in bankruptcy. And put life into them? Yeah, exactly. And, and the fun in that was you have this brand or this company and these people and you could potentially revive it, 
right? So a lot of our work was like, okay, what do we have here and how do we build on it? and grow it. So any media company today. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe if I'd stayed longer, I would have, I would have worked more uh, with entertainment companies. But the funny thing is, is in my time in finance, I didn't work on entertainment at all. I just sort of loved movies and TV and one day decided like, why don't I try to work in the industry? Um, I don't know what it will look like. Did you even know like what a job would look like in the industry? No on idea. The, on the finance no side idea. of things? No idea. Like I am, I am not a creative. You know, what I did love to do was, you know, I loved reading about entertainment. I loved reading about movies and the business behind television and movies. And so I would do that a lot. And I was like, well, why don't I work a job that I actually enjoy like talking about and reading about and sort of bring all of those worlds together. I mean, that's what ideally everyone uh, should aspire to do where you're getting Doesn't feel to, like work as much, right? Yeah, exactly. Like you're, you're looking at the news, you're reading what's happening. It, listening in, to podcasts in, in about podcasts, entertainment. Watching yeah. film that's homework, you're watching film yeah. and TV. Um, and so like, I often tell Jess, cause she's like, why are you watching so much sports? I'm like, well, I'm a, you know, there, I'm a, a big part of my job is being a sports lawyer. I need to go. know this stuff. She's like, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, slyly. And so like, where did the HBO gig come from? So look, I was just looking around. I was looking around in entertainment generally and trying to understand what the jobs were like, what I could do, how my background could come into play. And I was really fortunate that at the time, HBO had a role on their finance and strategy team. And so I had a background in finance. You know, I have done some strategy work and... I wanted to work in entertainment, got lucky, interviewed and got in. So my first job at HBO, I, and by the way, I, I feel like I worked like six or seven jobs there. My first one was- And on you got the there before the AT&T yeah, merger? Yeah, it was right before the AT&T merger. So I joined in 2016 and six months or so into the role, there was a headline that AT&T was going to acquire Warner Media, Time Warner at the time. Because they were trying to build out their streaming product. Exactly. Right, what, they, right. what, what they wanted, what AT&T wanted was to have sort of a media conglomerate where they had wireless, broadband, and an entertainment arm. They sort of wanted to compete with Comcast, I think. Right. Um, and also just like, you know, really push further away from Verizon. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, there's a lot that obviously went wrong and went right. But it's a tough business to run. Yeah. It's a very tough business to run. I think people underestimate how hard it is to run an entertainment company when that's not your background. But for you, like this finance and strategy at an entertainment company, like what were you doing early on? You know, I was helping executives think through strategy and go forward strategy. And obviously like in the last 10 years, there's been so much change. So some of it was gathering intelligence and trying to understand what's happening in the marketplace, bringing that back to the executives and saying, here's a recommendation of what we should do, what we should think about. Also, I was helping out with small investments in companies or partnerships and things like that. One of the most fun things was actually new types of content. So I would do a bunch of research on AR and VR and short form content and digital news and bring that in and say, hey, like, this is what's going on. This is what Vice Media is doing. This is what so-and-so are doing. 
and how maybe HBO can- and, and Vice had an HBO show, didn't they? They did. Yeah, they did. We we aired it for for some time, and it was it was fairly successful. Was, I I mean, I actually enjoyed the show personally. Right, right, right. And, and then from there, where did you go? So my next job within HBO, and again, I like I'm lucky to have worked in so many different areas of the company, but was focused around film acquisitions. And so working with our film acquisition professionals to we go and have big sort of slate deals with major film studios for pay their, one windows. Which is the first window after the theatrical run ends, right? Exactly, exactly. So a movie goes into a theater for let's say 60 to 90 days. It ends up on pay-per-view or on demand for a period of time, like a couple months. And then it comes to a streamer or a network and that's premium. the first, that's the first, yeah, like a premium network at the time, an HBO with stars at the showtime. Now it's like, it can go to Netflix, Hulu, whoever. Yeah, well, that, and that's another thing. And so that theatrical window in some cases, it, as a result of the pandemic, disappeared, right? Some things were day and date. Were you involved in, in any of that? That was such a unique time. Got um, it. Well, yeah, theaters were closed, right? Theaters were closed. And I think a, a lot of companies were trying different strategies, really to stay alive and to keep the film industry alive and people weren't going to the theater. As a fan, I, I thought it was brilliant. I could understand why if you're a talent, you could have may have an issue with it because like, you're like, not getting yeah, yeah. back end on the on streaming performance. But as a fan, you're like Friday yeah. night, not going to the theaters. HBO Max has a great movie, new movie coming out. So I yeah. it. Yeah. Look, look, there's it could have been done better. Sure. Um, I'm not gonna go too deep into all of that, but uh, uh, you know. As a fan of movies and going to the theaters, I am personally happy that there has been somewhat of a resurgence, somewhat of a return. It's my opinion that you're going to have a balance. You're going to have some movies that go straight to a, a streaming, and you're going to have movies that are great for theaters and that, like like we said earlier, sort of gets butts in seats. But that was that was some of the work I was doing is is really like evaluating and helping the film acquisition team think about deals, think about how much we should pay and what our overall strategy should be. Because by films would your on team decide are, which what price was fair and would you run models? Understand that or yeah, that's exactly what we would do is basically look at the comps, look at what we have, you know, done in the past, what other people may have been rumored to paying for movies. And it's also like, what value do they bring to our service? Like like from a brand standpoint, right? Because if HBO is known for just making good content or having good content on the platform, you're assessing like creative as well. Like, does it meet the brand standards? Does it meet the brand standards? You know, the ultimate goal is in a subscription model, you want to add subscribers and you want to retain them. And so the thinking was, was that you have shows to sort of, you know, there's tentpole shows and they'll come out like Succession and The Last of Us and Thrones and all like all of the, the big ones that we all love. And in between that time, you have movies to keep people happy and excited. And they know on Friday right, or Saturday right. night, they're sitting at home, they can find- King Richard. You know, exactly like a recent movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's actually, you know, you forget back in the day, HBO, like on cable was like, it was more movies and then it was original original content. content. And now it's almost like, I don't, 
I, it's like sometimes I'm like, oh, they put a new movie on here. I'm like, oh, cool. Like there's movies on HBO. Like not thinking that that was it's it's a mix of both. They're lit. They're actually called home box office. Right. Yeah, right? <laughs> right. So they that and that's what you know, they're they're that's what that's what the like core was. So it's it's fun to like have been at least a hand in working on some of that. I and mean, obviously they're they're brilliant at what they do. And then from there, because I mean, you spent what, six, seven years at HBO? Yeah. So, you know, how did you get into podcasting? As I was looking into different types of content, one of the areas was audio and podcasting. And so I was researching it a ton and saying, wow, it's it's a growing medium. Our subscribers are actually really perfectly suited for audio because it it generally is like sort of millennial, you know, college educated people who like really want to get deeper, a more intimate relationship with the content, with the shows and TV and movies, you know, that they're watching. And so I built sort of a little pitch deck and and a really simple business plan of saying HBO should get into this space. It's That's it's wait cool. you. Like you started the podcasting division at HBO? I I mean, so I partnered with two producers from the marketing team at the time. Shout out to Becky Rowe and Michael Glexat, who were brilliant. And my boss at the time was like, hey, like I'll I'll give you sort of the runway and the time to to research podcasting and and maybe make a case for it. So yeah, like built a deck and was like, like, we should do this. Um, we huh. should, it's, that it's low so, cost. It is low cost. Yeah. And like you, it's like an extension of the shows that you're doing now because all of us are listening to the succession podcast. Yeah. Right. With Kara Swisher. It's like you get the episode and then you get that. I mean, how did you think about it from like what's made for the shows that are just assisting the shows that are low cost? And then there's obviously like scripted shows as well. Right. So we had done some scripted shows, um, Batman, The Audio Adventures, Looking for LaToya, which is like a spinoff of Insecure. It's a really fun show in, inside the show. But um, yeah, mo- like you said, most of our shows were- super fa- For were super fans? Companions and super, yeah, super companions. fans. So the way I think we like to say it was like, you feed super fans, but hopefully you also build super fans. Right. You, like if someone's gonna watch a show, the greatest engagement you can have is them continuing for another 30 minutes listening to a show about succession. That's what the ultimate goal was. It's a low cost, sort of low barriers to entry way to get people excited about and you the have show. The, and you have a built-in audience. You have a built, yeah, right. Yeah, and you know, you're like, you're showing it, on, like you're watching the end of the show and it's like, go listen to the podcast. So yeah. it might not, so it's a good retention tool, right? Yeah. I guess if someone loves Game of Thrones, and you're not spending ten million per podcast episode, right? You were there, and now you're you're working on at a new company. Uh, would love to learn more about that company. Leaving HBO was really hard because there's a special sauce there, and I tried for my six or seven years to really understand what that special sauce was, and it really isn't that complicated, but it's also very hard to pull off. What they are great at is balancing giving the audience what they want with giving the audience things that they don't know they want yet. Right. That is a fine line to sort of walk. It's also what good lawyers do. 
It's <laughs> give your clients what they want and maybe what they don't know. What they, what want. they don't or know. What they yeah. don't want. What they don't <laughs> know that they want. Yeah. They'll just deal with it. That's the motto. Um, no, well, it's, seeing around the corners and, and yeah. anticipation, right? Necessarily like being a trendsetter, being a tastemaker and really understanding the zeitgeist and also just making the zeitgeist. Like The Last of Us, people have tried video game adaptations. Right. Right. So they, they're like, okay, we're going to do a video game ad- adaptation. There's a fan base, but we're going to do it in a way that has never been done before. It's intimate. It's beautiful storytelling. White Lotus is another example. Like, who wants to watch all these rich people <laughs> and like obnoxious people on vacation? But it worked. It yeah. worked. And yeah. they did it in a way that, like, you know, like Tony Soprano is a, is a great example. The guy is objectively not a good guy but they make you like him. They make you almost root for him. Right. And it's, so it's complicated. Um, and, and so- And The Wire, I mean, I it was not really a crime drama person. I know yeah. it's like very popular, but yeah. like that show really just was so detailed and, and meticulous in how it broke down problems. And, and also every season was like a different arc entirely. So I, I really love that show. Yeah, that to me is- uh, it's maybe the best show. I go back and forth as to what my favorite show is, but that is one of the best shows because it is, it's so authentic and it's so nuanced. Like you get the police and the FBI side of things. You get sort of people on the streets living that day-to-day life. And there's complications on both. The and judicial system. The judicial system. Yeah. Like it's- and it, Stringer Bell. I mean, geez. Yeah. 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 The introduction of Idris Elba to yeah. the world. Right, like had you ever seen someone take almost an academic approach to like selling on the streets? I mean, they show him like going to community college classes and auditing and he's there taking notes and you're like, man, this guy is, this guy's brilliant. He's like, I mean, they they liken it to a CEO. Right. What I'm getting at, and again, I say this not, like I, I don't work at HBO anymore. I say it as a fan. Like I I've believed this before, during and after. I worked at HBO. Like, I think that's what makes it special. Now, you asked, like, how did I end up at Blanchard? It's hard to leave a place like that because people are brilliant and they're they're performing at the highest levels. And so for me, it was really important to make sure that I found that in the next thing. And that's really where meeting Kim Jong, who's the CEO, and Rosie Pai, who's the creative director and the really creative engine of the company, that was is what attracted me to them is they're of that ilk of we care so much about telling a story but telling a story our way like we're gonna do true crime but we're not gonna do true crime in the traditional sense that we that has been done so like over and over again we're gonna do it in a very high quality and nuanced way like that's what drew me to blanchard these are audio docu-series essentially, right? So what Blanchard does are nonfiction narrative podcasts. And the idea is that it spans multiple episodes. It can be true crime related. It can also just be mysterious and interesting and heartwarming and gut-wrenching at times. Like The goal, I think, of our stories is to have a lot of twists and turns to make you think and to make you feel. You're going you're going to come out of our shows 
feeling something and that's that's fun i'm ex- i'm very excited for you two to to listen yeah i was just looking at kimberly's bio she's like a marvel superhero <laughs> u.s army engineer officer educated at harvard business school mit and the u.s military Jeez. academy at west point <laughs> uh, she's unbelievable that's, honestly like wow like she was a platoon leader wow and you know you can see it when she's sort of leading in meetings and she's just like so focused I would follow her to the to the ends of the world because like she is a badass. I mean, and, and same goes with Rosie. Like, man, I'm just I again, I'm so excited for for our stories to come out because people are going to be amazed at Rosie's ability to tell these stories. You know, she's she's award-winning journalist, BBC, and really reported from crisis centers across the world. She's seen some stuff and yeah. She's told a lot of stories. So like uh, both of them are just, man, they're easy to sort of to follow. And and actually that's a funny story. I met them at a conference. Oh, really? When I was at, yeah, I, was, I was still working at HBO and I met them at a conference and it was just like a 15 minute meeting. Like, hey, let, let, you know, we'd love to get to know you Was better. it scheduled or was it impromptu? They reached out to me. Okay. At the conference and they're like, hey, like, do you have 15 minutes for a coffee? And I was like, you know, these conferences are exhausting, <laughs> right? There's like a bunch of small talk. And, and you're like HBO. I'm sure everybody wants to talk to you. Not, well, he's not, also a cool guy. I mean, no, I am definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> it had nothing to do with me. It's, it's, I worked at HBO and they're like, you know, we should talk to someone there. And you're right. Like a lot of people reached out. And I, I looked at their bios and I was like, well, these, these two sound really cool. Like, let me take this meeting. So I go and I meet them for about 15 minutes and we're talking and I'm just kind of looking at them like, these two are different. They just came up with this concept to tell these stories, these nonfiction. Blanchard has a group of brilliant journalists who have, again, worked at the best places. And now they had that training and now they're like, we want to tell stories that like really have an impact and really move people. I I sort of walked away from that meeting being like, wow, this is different. Now we kept in touch and it was about a year, year and a half later, we sort of reconnected. And I think for me, I was like, this is too good of an opportunity to pass up. Yeah. Again, I love my colleagues at HBO. I love my time there, but I think it was time for me to sort of move into a role where I can help a smaller company get on the map, get stories out. And so specifically my role, by the way, is head of partnerships and strategy. Which means? Which means, I know, it's just like mumbo jumbo. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not are you in this team photo? Blah, blah, blah. Um, no, I'm not in the team photo. That was last year, I think. Uh, they they took it at the actual Blanchard house, which is where Rosie, Rosie grew up. Um, it's oh, a beautiful cool. town. Yeah, beautiful sort of uh, by the water town in the UK. And so what is the, what does that mean? Head of partnerships and yeah. strategy. Um, so partnerships and strategy is, you know, Rosie is the creative genius behind all of this. And so she has stories and her and I will take that to partners. Basically any TV production studio right. that can develop a story and then sell that into a network or a streamer. So you have one of your audio series, it's on a certain subject. Then you go and partner up with like a a production house who yeah. then goes and they present that to like a Netflix or an HBO or something like that. Exactly, exactly. And, and by the way, the way we work is that we want to be a part of that entire process. Right. So the idea is we develop stories 
from our journalists, from Rosie and, and our team of journalists, that then get made into a podcast, into a narrative nonfiction series. And that podcast can be the basis for a derivative. Right. Documentary, television show, movie. And so we can enter into a shopping agreement with a production studio who then we shop it together to the Netflixes and HBOs and Hulus and everyone. Or we can go direct to them or we can go to an audio platform. So actually one of our first stories is with Audible. Okay. It'll be coming out this summer and we we have five shows in total coming out this summer and, and fall, which I'm excited for you you to listen to. But that's the mode is like, we would work with, let's say an Audible, develop the podcast, release it, and go and shop it around for it to be made into a film or TV show. Nice. And so it could potentially come full circle where there's a show that you make at Blanchard House that ends up at HBO. Um, that is That would be amazing. Um, <laughs> that would be the dream. Obviously, because again, like as a fan, I love HBO uh, and you know, I think what drove me to Blanchard is it shares that sort of similar, like they care so much about the story and being meticulous. Like, you know, HBO, the intros are always so good. Right. The music's good. The yeah. like, the visuals are good. And, like, yeah. I think we really care at Blanchard about sound design. Yeah. Like we want it to be a sort of unique experience. We want you to wear headphones and really get consumed by the story, which is, you know, again, like I think I think it'll stand out when we when we start launching. Well, well dude, we're excited to hear it. Yeah. We want to thank you for being amazing guest and just giving the insights as we went through news and all those things. And, and you've had just an incredible career and um, excited for this next step for you. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a ton of fun. And honestly, I forgot that we're even on mics <laughs> and I you know, just felt like chatting. So this has been, this has been a lot well, of that's, fun. That's the best, right? Yeah, when yeah, you yeah. don't realize that it's an episode. Well, that's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Hassan Chowdhury for being our guest. And uh, we'll see everyone next week. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. And please follow us, Better Call Paul, the podcast on Instagram. And I am at Mesh Lakani on Twitter. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>